So our reading's on page 1147 from 1 Corinthians 5, page 1147. So 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the bread, the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy or the sw and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Thanks very much, Kezia. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Madhush. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Church. Um, it is a real joy to be able to gather like this week after week. And so let me just add my welcome to Adam's. Um, <clears throat> it's probably also worth me saying that I have a cold, so please bear with me if my voice gives out at some point. And it is worth reminding you that um, we're in the habit every few weeks as we work through a, a part of the Bible that uh, we are preaching through to, to pause and have time for questions and answers. Um, you'll find that over these next uh, two, three chapters in 1 Corinthians, there are many uh, difficult and challenging issues that come up. Um, and there may well be questions that are raised that we're not able to answer from up here um, as we preach. And so please make a note of those things. Uh, we will have a, a, the opportunity to ask some of those questions in a couple of weeks' time. Um, and then later on the 3rd of December, remember that we are having a teaching day um, on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Well, let me pray for us as we get into this. Heavenly Father, we are delighted that your words give life that they point us to Jesus Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of our sin. That your spirit works in us through your word to change how we think and what we want, making us more like Jesus. Give us years to listen now and help us to submit to the challenges of this text. Amen. 
Well, maybe like me, when um, you've read all of the headlines and heard the news about bedbugs in the Paris transport system, uh, it sent a little bit of a shiver down your spine, uh, the prospect of that getting into the London transport system. Uh, risky contaminants should make us nervous. They, they are a risk. Uh, but here's an interesting bit of Trinity trivia. Um, I just discovered it this week. I'm told that the very first meeting of Trinity Church, uh, the, public, the first public gathering, did happen because there was an outbreak of the norovirus. Apparently, even one of the local establishments got shut down and the health uh, department got involved. See, it just takes one person to be infected to put the whole community at risk. Uh, the symptoms of the norovirus are really unpleasant, in some cases even deadly. And so we take every precaution to protect each other. Now, in the first four, four chapters of uh, 1 Corinthians, we encountered a, a really gifted church. But it was a church that was divided. They were spiritually blessed, but still immature and proud. In their efforts to look wise and powerful, they had lost sight of the foolish-looking gospel of Christ crucified which is God's power to accomplish his purposes among them. Instead, they chased after what the world thought was impressive. And as a result, they had distorted what true Christian living looked like. Now here we begin to see how their spiritual pride, their distaste for the cross of Christ, affected their attitude to sin and to each other. Chapter 5 here challenges us to examine our attitude to sin. Uh, it, it, it calls us to be mindful of who we are in Christ and to fix our eyes on the future that is before us. Now, the presenting problem is there in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles open, page 1147, chapter 5, verse 1, there's the problem. Uh, there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. See, it sounds like uh, the man was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. It's the plotline of every good soap opera. Now, that word for sexual immorality has the idea of any sexual behavior that falls outside God's design for sex. See, God, God's design for sex is that it is a service-oriented, joyful union between one man and one woman in the context of a loving, secure marriage. In this case, the sin was so bad that Paul says that even the Corinthians who were sexually permissive would have been horrified by what was going on. And we can also tell from the tense of the verb that the sin is ongoing. Those involved are persistent and unrepentant in their sin. They don't acknowledge that it is offensive to God and it's harmful to them and others, so they don't turn away from it. But you see, that is only the surface issue. The deeper concern in verse 2 is that the church is proud. Now, Paul is referring to the whole church here, not just the people involved in the sexual sin. Rather than being filled with grief or challenging the man, the church is proud. That's quite stunning. I mean, that, that reaction of the church makes it clear how out of step they were 
with the gospel, that they could think of themselves as these spiritually mature people while sin like this was present in the church. Now, perhaps their pride was a self-assurance that let them think they were so spiritual that they were above this sort of concern. You know, maybe they said to themselves, look, our God is so inclusive. We are so open-minded that this isn't a big issue. Love is love may have been their motto. Or perhaps the issue is what's addressed later in chapter 6, that they think that what they do with their bodies doesn't matter, that it has no spiritual significance. Well, they're wrong. We'll, we'll get there in a couple of weeks' time. They've taken the freedom of the gospel of grace as a license to indulge their sinful desires. And so what we see is that this man's sin is a problem. He's in danger. But his sin also affects the rest of the church. The whole church is in danger because in their pride, they are tolerating that sin. Now, friends, we live in a culture that is morally permissive. Almost anything goes. We are taught that we should respect the other person's right to have a different preference or even a different moral standard. It's become wrong to label another person's values as wrong. The danger for us is that we start to adopt the world's value system, and it comes to define our relationships with each other. But Paul is uncompromisingly clear on the issue. Sin is serious. Even if everyone around us treats it lightly, God's character hasn't changed. God is still a holy God. And so if we are trusting in Jesus, we can be confident that the penalty for our sin has been paid at the cross. We can be confident that we are forgiven. Because of Jesus' work, look, this is how chapter 6 verse 11 puts it. Just, just turn over the page and have a look with me. It's just over the page uh, at the top left, chapter 6 verse 11. Um, in, in the bit before that, we, we were sexually immoral. We were idolaters. We were adulterers, thieves, greedy, drunkards. But verse 11, do you see what's happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's who you were, but it's not who you are. Now, Christians still sin. But our sin doesn't control us. It doesn't define who we are. God has made us new people. And yet if we act as if sin doesn't matter, something's gone terribly wrong. We've lost sight of what Christ has done for us. We've forgotten that the power of sin over us is broken. We've forgotten that we have a brand new identity. We've forgotten the future that lies before us because of Christ. And in that case, this text challenges us to really question whether we are trusting in Christ crucified. Are we really as safe as we think we are? Well, what should the church do? 
Well, we're called to exercise loving discipline because it's good for the unrepentant sinner and it's good for the church. The what is there in uh, verses 3 to 5, back over the page, chapter 5. And this may shock us. It may shock us because uh, the church is to exclude the sinner from their fellowship. That's what they should have done, the end of verse 2, but they didn't do it. And it's what they're now called to do. See, Paul says he's making a judgment here as an apostle. You may remember chapter 1, verse 1. Paul is an apostle by the will of God. He's a messenger of Jesus. He has authority among them, but it's not his own authority. He's under the authority and power of the Lord Jesus, as verse 4 says. This isn't Paul's church. It's not the Corinthians' church. This is Jesus' church. These people belong to the Lord Jesus. They were set apart in him, called to be holy, in the language of chapter 1. They are God's building, God's temple, in the language of chapter 3. God's spirit lives among them. But sin damages all that. It undermines all that. Unrepentant sin is so dangerous that Jesus wants to shake us awake to the peril that we may be in. And so he says, rather shockingly, verse 5, hand this man over to Satan. What does that mean? Well, in New Testament thinking, there are two realms. There's the realm over which Satan holds temporary sway. It's the dominion of darkness. It's the realm of sin and death, the realm of the flesh. And then there's the realm where God's rule is acknowledged, the realm of righteousness and life, the kingdom of his son, Jesus, the realm of the Spirit. Christians have been rescued by Christ from one to the other. But being put out of the fellowship excludes someone from the community where God lives by his Spirit. It returns them to the realm of Satan. Their behavior doesn't fit with those who are set apart to belong to God. And so they are denied the privileges of family membership. In other words, Paul is saying here, treat them as if they were not a Christian. Now, I don't know where your mind goes. It may be that as you hear that, you think that such a response is over the top. Where's grace? Where is compassion? Well, our feelings may be shaped by how discipline appears in the present. Discipline is never pleasant, but it is for good. You see, Paul has his eyes set on the day of the Lord. Those are the words at the end of verse 5. He wants the sinner who is unrepentant today be safe on that day when Jesus comes in all his glory. And so the first thing we must see is that discipline is motivated by love. Its aim is to restore the unrepentant sinner. Right now, the the man isn't living in line with the gospel he claims to believe. He doesn't see his sin as grievous in God's sight. He thinks he can carry on in it without any consequence. That simply isn't true. He's in danger. He's in grave danger. 
He's not living as a Christian. And so by excluding him from the blessings of belonging to God's family, the hope is that he realizes his true condition. He comes to his senses and he turns to God and away from sin. That's what's going on here. But second, dealing with unrepentant sin is also good for the rest of the church. Paul reminds us in verse 6 that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Now that's a familiar imagery. We all eat bread. The rest of the church wasn't in the bedroom. They didn't participate in the sin. And yet the sin affects all of them. To draw from the imagery of chapter 3, one broken pillar compromises the structural integrity of the entire building. Sin spreads. We may not always, from our perspective, be able to draw a straight line between cause and effect. But God is very clear. Sin leads to more sin. And we can see that in the Corinthian church, their pride shows that already a casual attitude to sin had infected them. Now that yeast imagery takes us back to the Old Testament celebration of the Passover. As God's people celebrated the Passover, remembering their dramatic rescue from Egypt, they would remove every bit of yeast from their homes. And so unleavened bread, bread without yeast, came to signify their new identity as God's rescued people, a people no longer under the rule of an old wicked power. Now this rescue came for them through the substitution of the Passover lamb, whose blood spread on their doorways meant that God's righteous anger against sin passed over the Israelites. Now the Passover points forward to our greater rescue. Verse 7, we meet Christ, our Passover lamb, who died so that our sin may be forgiven and we may live as purified people set apart for him. For the Corinthians to carry on without challenging this man's sin, without turning from their spiritual arrogance, was to completely forget who they were. It was to forget what Christ had done for them. It was to forget the new privileges they enjoyed. Now let me just deal with one difficulty before I come to us. You may remember last week, from the beginning of chapter 4, that Paul urged the Corinthians not to judge him or each other. Now there he was condemning a self-righteous judgmentalism, an attitude that's driven by pride that says, I'm better than you. You don't measure up to my standards. That sort of attitude ignores the gospel of Christ crucified. It ignores God's power to renew us by his grace. But here in chapter 5, we are to make judgments. Judgments about sin, judgments about each other. But there are some key differences. See, first, that judgment comes from a place of humility, not pride. I recognize that I, too, am a sinner undeserving of God's grace. It's a judgment that is motivated by love. 
I'm seeking the good of the other person, not to boost my own ego. And it relies on the message of the cross to bring lasting change. We're not trying to shame or disapprove someone externally conforming to some standard. We're pointing them to the cross of Christ and depending on God's power to bring deep, lasting change. And so I hope you can see why we are not to judge in chapter 4, and yet we are to judge in chapter 5. Jesus teaches exactly the same thing. That is where Paul draws this teaching from. Well, what about us? Well, I think first we need to realize that we are far more interconnected than we like to believe. It's so easy for us to think, look, it's my life. I'll do whatever I want. It's none of your business. But that's not how families work. Your life affects me. My life, my sin, affects you. Whether you can see it or not, whether it's my out sin in the public eye or it's very well hidden. See, before Faye and I got married, we, we both really valued our independence. That was a really important thing for both of us. But suddenly, as family, we had to confront the reality that we were now interdependent. There wasn't anything that either of us could do, however small the decision seemed, that did not affect the other person. It's like that with church family. Yes, it's our adopted family, but it is our family. We are interdependent. And so we need to care enough about each other to be willing to lovingly challenge unrepentant sin. Again, I'm not sure where your mind is going. Maybe you're thinking, what is it in my life that I may be unwittingly infecting those around me with? Or you think, who is it that I need to go and challenge about an area of their life? But it's very easy to get this wrong. And so let me be clear about what we mean when we're talking about unrepentant sin. Because Christians do sin, we are not perfect people. If there's any doubt in your mind, you just need to spend a little bit more time with me. See, Christians are not perfect, but we do have the Holy Spirit living inside us. And one of the wonderful things that he does is he's constantly highlighting areas of our lives that are sinful, areas where we're not living under God's loving rule. Now, he doesn't do this all at once. We wouldn't be able to cope if he did. We are lifelong works of the Holy Spirit as he slowly crafts and molds us, making us more like Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit shows up areas of sin in our lives, wonderfully, I can say, yes, I see that now, Father. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please change me. Please strengthen me so that I can live for you. See, there is grace for the sinner. God gives us help to change. 
One of the greatest encouragements of the Christian life, I think, is when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. Because it's one of the clearest signs that he's at work in you. Now, that doesn't mean that the problem will go away immediately. For some of us, there will be areas of sin that are a lifelong battle. But that's the point. It's a battle. You are fighting, relying on God to strengthen you because you realize that sin is serious, that it offends God, that it harms you. What has been described here in 1 Corinthians 5 is where there is no battling, where someone doesn't see their sin as sinful. It's someone overindulging in alcohol or persistently gossiping or engaging in sexual activity outside marriage or pursuing a romantic relationship with a non-Christian or loving money or lacking integrity in their business dealings and thinking it doesn't matter. This is no big deal. See, that sin has become a settled pattern in your life. You ignore the Spirit's conviction. You say to, your life, you say to yourself, it's my life. I'll do what I want. There is no deep desire to change, to count the cost of fighting against that sin. And the challenge for us is that in such a situation, would we love them enough to confront them about that sin? Would we be prepared under the direction of our church leaders to ask them to leave our fellowship, hopefully temporarily, for their sake and ours? Well, unrepentant sin is really dangerous in a church family. But it's crucial to point out here that we are talking about the church. Uh, take a look down at verse 9 with me. Uh, Paul says in an earlier letter, I, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world. Instead, verse 11 I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but continues in their sin. Christians and non-Christians are different. They live in different realms, and so we must treat them differently. I don't make the mistake of treating non-Christians as if they were Christians. So what does that mean? It means that we should expect a gospel lifestyle from a gospel person. Those who are professing to believe in Christ, but refuse to repent, who instead are persisting in sin, should be judged. The privileges of family membership should be taken away. They should be treated as a non-believer in the hope that they will realize the danger that they're in, repent, and be saved. But don't expect a gospel lifestyle from a non-gospel person. We cannot and should not expect such standards of behavior from people who are not Christians. They have not been transformed by the Holy Spirit through the message of the cross. 
to expect godly behavior from someone who's not a Christian is simply to enforce empty moralism. It's not our job to pass judgment on them in the sense of trying to correct their behavior. Instead, what we do is that we declare the message of Christ crucified. We do that in love, with humility. We call people to turn to Jesus in faith, relying on his power, by his spirit, to change them. And do you realize that that means we need to be able to tell who's in and who's out? You can't do this if you don't know. Now let me be very, very clear here. This is not to say that if you are not part of our church family that you are not welcome. Of course you are. We have been given a precious gift and we want to share that with you. Our hope is that as you hear the message of Christ, as you see God's work among us, that you will be attracted to him, that you will experience his love, that you will find your deepest desires being satisfied, that you will find a home where you belong. We are a church with doors wide open where everyone is welcome. But that is different from belonging to God's family. Uh, Belonging to the family means commitment. It's a commitment first to living under Jesus' rule, to turning from sin and following him in faith. And it's a commitment to each other. It's a commitment to being present regularly so that we grow together under the teaching of God's word, so that we develop genuine depth of relationship with each other, so that we know what's going on with each other and can care for each other's needs. It's a commitment to use your gifts to serve each other, to pray for each other, to give financially to support the proclamation of the gospel, See, for those who have made that commitment to be disciples of Jesus, there is a way of life that we are called to. Now, I'm sure this raises many questions, far more questions uh, than I'm able to answer. But let me just give you an example as we try to work it out. Now, let's say that it becomes clear over time that there is someone in your small group who is pursuing a romantic relationship with a non-Christian. Or they are abusing alcohol. Or a man is emotionally abusing his wife. Lovingly and humbly, the small group leaders will want to meet with that person. They'll want to remind that person of the gospel of grace and challenge them on their sin. And yet if there's no repentance over time, if there's no determination to fight that sin, then they'll want to make very clear that they will treat that person as a non-Christian until there is evidence of change. Now, I don't think that means that a person can't come to our Sunday gatherings. We're open to everyone. I don't think it means that we can't relate to that person and continue to show them love as we speak the message of the cross. 
But there does need to be a clear communication of separation to say that this is not okay. We will ask that person not to share in the Lord's Supper because eating the bread and drinking the wine is a sign for Christians. And if that person is part of a serving team, we may ask them to step off it for a period of time. Our aim is to communicate separation for the good of the person and for the protection of the church. I think it's worth stealing a couple of minutes here to, to again challenge us on this. I think one of the difficulties in the culture we live in is that it is very easy when you're confronted by something that you're uncomfortable with, that you don't like, to just walk away. It's very easy for you to find a church down the road and decide, yeah, okay, Trinity is not for me and I'm going to go there. There's a challenge on both sides here. A challenge to be willing to confront each other, to hold each other accountable to the way of life that Jesus calls us to. But there's also a challenge for us here to receive that challenge, to receive that confrontation. That when a brother or sister comes to me and gently, in grace, with humility, points out sin in my life and calls me to repent, that I hear it. That when I'm placed under discipline, I receive that discipline in the love that it is intended. That I take it seriously, that I'm shaken awake and I turn back to Christ. Friends, if we don't consistently remind ourselves and each other of who Christ has made us, then bit by bit, the world's wisdom, our culture's wisdom, is going to win our minds and win our hearts. And we will live just like everyone else. When you are tempted to think that your sin is not serious, remember Christ crucified. There is grace for the sinner. God's power is for us to help us change. Please pray with me as I end. Father, we rejoice that you want us to grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Will you strengthen us to fight against sin in our own lives and to show each other love by calling each other to repentance? Amen.